How's it going, family? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. Big news, you guys. I have created a new phone number that you can use to get in touch with me directly via text message. If you live in the United States or Canada, you can send a message to 310-299-9401 to send me real-time feedback about this episode of the podcast or any other. Take that number down. It's 310-299-9401. Save it in your phone as Max Lugavere and shoot me a text message. I read all of your messages and I'll even respond to some, as many as I can actually. And although I can't respond to every single person, um, I will very much try to every day answer at least uh, five to 10 text messages. So again, shoot me a text message, 310-299-9401, and I look forward to being in touch. Now, this episode of the show is super special. In it, I welcome Chris Kresser. Chris Kresser is the founder of the Kresser Institute, co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, and the creator of chriskresser.com. Plus, he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote a book called The Paleo Cure, and he's one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the field of functional medicine and ancestral health. Chris has been in the zeitgeist lately for his appearance on on a slew of Joe Rogan episodes where he takes on the documentary The Game Changers. On one of them, he debunked the film, or I should say many of the claims made in the film. And then on the follow-up episode, he was debating James Wilkes, who is one of the producers of the film. I consider Chris Kresser to be a brilliant guy, an expert in nutrition, and healthy living in general. And so I'm excited to be able to have a conversation with him. Over the course of the next hour, you're gonna discover truths about dairy, which is better, full fat, or low fat. We're going to talk about mercury in fish. We're going to talk about movement for longevity. And we're going to talk about why the nutrition discourse online and everywhere else seems to have become so inflamed lately. Chris drops a lot of knowledge in this episode. He's a very thoughtful guy and uh, obviously knows his stuff. So I'm excited for you to listen to it. Before we get to it, however, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. And that is Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes a line of mushroom-infused coffees. Uh, They integrate quote-unquote medicinal mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane into a line of organic instant coffees. And plus, you can, if you're avoiding coffee or uh, caffeine-free, you can go for any one of their elixirs, which are also great. On a previous episode, you heard me talk all about the potential health benefits of a mushroom called reishi. And I get my reishi and other uh, mushrooms from Four Sigmatic. If you want to check out anything that Four Sigmatic has to offer, all you got to do is head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of anything in their online store. For starters, I would check out their reishi or their lion's mane. I would say there's a good amount of research published on both of them that, that you can then go and check out. And let me know what you think. Again, that's foursigmatic.com slash max or promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off of everything and anything in their online store. All right, we're just seconds away from my chat with Mr. Chris Kresser. Again, he's the bomb. Guys, I would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a rating and review for this show on iTunes. Of course, I would value your, your feedback directly via text message, as I mentioned earlier, but by leaving that rating and review for the show on iTunes, you're supporting the genius life uh, by helping to draw new ears to it. You're helping it rise up the ranks in the iTunes health category. And I read all of them, like this message from McDonald EG1. 
They wrote, I'm so grateful for Max and all of the effort he puts into cultivating a well-rounded, educational, edifying podcast. I've learned so much in just a few episodes and have found myself consistently saying yes, along with many of the things I hear because I've experienced it in my own life. I have yet to listen to a podcast I regret. The relaxing atmosphere of his interviews and the speakers he brings on are intelligent and amusing. I appreciate Max's genuine personality and find this podcast extremely refreshing in this oversaturated age. I find myself wanting to share these podcasts with all my friends and family because of the impact they have on me. Thank you, Max, and all involved. I'm very much looking forward to what 2020 brings. Well, thank you so much, McDonald EG1. I really appreciate that you're helping to spread the word about the podcast because that's what it's all about, guys. We got to bring new ears to the show so that we can have a greater impact on the world at large. We're all about altruism here at The Genius Life, paying it forward and helping make the world a better place. So there's no better way to do that than by spreading the message about what we're doing here at The Genius Life, sharing it with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your dog, your cat, This isn't about me. This is about making the world more genius so that we can all have a better time inhabiting it. All right. With all that said, uh, I'm excited to get on with this chat with Mr. Chris Kresser. So uh, let's rock and roll. All right. We're rolling. Mr. Chris Kresser, thank you so much for being with me on The Genius Life. Max, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours, and I feel like I kind of know you, having watched hours and hours and hours upon hours of you on Rogan's podcast recently, uh, debunking you know a certain um, vegan documentary that has made the rounds in on a social media. It's on Netflix now. Um, and I just got to say, man, you're you're great. Like, I love all the research that you do and how rigorously you approach these topics. And um, so, yeah, I just want to, like, celebrate you for uh, for for putting yourself out there and for saying the things on such a huge platform that I feel like many of us in the, you know, in the health and nutrition community, especially those of us who kind of view health through an ancestral lens, uh, wanted to say. But, you know, you did such a good job. So thank you. Well, thanks, Mac. I appreciate that. Did you ever think that debunking these kinds of documentaries, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I want to talk about stuff beyond this, but like, did you ever think that this would become such a major part of your job? How did that happen? Uh, No, had no idea. Um, I, I, that was actually my fourth appearance on Rogan. And um, I, the first time he reached out, I had no idea he followed my work. I was, I was, flattered and honored and, um, happy to go on a show. And that, you know, we, we first started talking about, uh, ancestral nutrition and, you know, some of the same topics that we covered in, in that, um, episode, just, you know, is there a role for animal products in a healthy diet and how, you know, what are some of the problems with nutritional research and observational epidemiology? And, you know, why do we have to be careful when we look at those studies and you know it's kind of a wide ranging conversation about uh, those topics. And um, then the second episode was about my second book, uh, Unconventional Medicine, which is really more about reinventing healthcare uh, with functional medicine and health coaching, and just a you know pre- preventing and reversing disease instead of just suppressing symptoms with drugs. Um, but you know then it just evolved from there, and I think. Um, Joe uh, just is a guy who really likes people to have all uh, sides of the story and so they can make an informed choice. And, you know, I was um, honored to be invited to do that. And, um, but no, I had no, I, I, it was not part of my career plan. <laughs> that's for sure. 
Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about your background, but why, before we get to that, why do you think nutrition discourse has become so inflamed as of late? I think that all discourse has become inflamed as of late. <laughs> and, you know, whether you're talking about politics or social issues, um, I was actually listening to Rick, uh, Ricky Gervais being interviewed by Sam Harris on his podcast recently. And he, he they were having this exact discussion about how there's really not much room for nuance or context anymore. You're either for something or you're against it. It's black or it's white. And there's little consideration of the the subtleties, the nuances that um, are present in almost any topic or or issue, substantive issue that we could talk about. So if you take the diet discussion, like is it you know is meat good or bad? I mean that's that's a silly question. <laughs> like what what's the context? Are you eating uh, a Big Mac or are you eating you know a grass fed hamburger patty with uh, you know, broccoli and salad and a sweet potato, like th those are totally going to have a totally different impact on the body. And, but that sort of nuance is not really acknowledged. You've got everybody taking sides. So you have vegans, plant-based diet advocates on one side, and then you have like, you know, paleo, low carb, keto, carnivore, kind of all on the other side. And I feel like that's really a shame because there is actually quite a lot in common um, between uh, those diets, maybe with the exception of carnivore, mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't doesn't have anything in common with a plant-based diet. Um, but that that commonality is lost, and the chance to find kind of um, you know uh, to have a productive discussion that isn't just like people throwing things at each other. Um, I think that would be a lot more useful for the general public. And instead, people just end up feeling really confused and throwing up their hands. Yeah. I mean, it it angers me because it. I feel like it does harm, you know, and that's yeah. really at the end of the day what we should all be sort of standing against, you know, people getting sicker and more confused. And yet these documentaries, which I mean, I guess there's. There's somewhere along the line, there's got to be some kind of positive, um, you know, intention. But uh, but it just seems like the net products always, you know, just stir up more confusion and um, really make matters more difficult for everybody. You know, and then you've got mm -hmm. the like the advocates or the zealots on 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 all different sides coming out of the woodwork. And yeah. it's just, it's really frustrating. So I agree. I agree. And it's, you know, it's the, the, the game changers. I mean, it was a, I actually do think, you know, some people think it's uh, that, that a lot of the people involved with that film are just trying to make money. And I've seen some of the criticisms that, you know, James Cameron, his executive producer, and he has a pea protein company. And that's, you know, this is just to make money for that. I, I don't believe that. I think it's actually pretty natural for people to invest in things that they believe in and care about and start companies around that. I mean, we, we could turn around and say the same thing for all kinds of paleo <laughs> companies, you know, like did, did people start a, a paleo you know, uh, like a uh, type food type of company because they were just um, trying to make money and profit on paleo or did they get really into paleo and then 
want to do something that was in alignment with their passion and interest. It's it's usually the latter rather than the former. And but it, I think it is where it's tricky is that it was clearly a, a film that is uh, agenda driven and advocacy based. So you know the people who are in it genuinely believe that a vegan plant based diet is the healthiest diet. They look at the same research that I and others look at, but they, and they come to a different conclusion. Um, so I don't think there's anything conspiratorial or, you know, that the primary motive for making that film was profit or anything like that. I just think that they came to a very different conclusion looking at the research. Um, and the, 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 the thing that's tricky is when a film like that is portrayed as a documentary, because a documentary is something different in my mind. It's something that looks at an issue somewhat dispassionately and tries to interview people on both sides, uh, you know, and, and give a kind of broad perspective on the different viewpoints on a particular topic and then let the viewer come to their own conclusion. Um, but that's, that's not what this film was. This, this film was um, clearly advocating for a plant-based diet. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there, there are films coming down the line that are going to be advocating for regenerative holistically managed um, beef and, you know, animal products in the context of a healthy diet. Um, but it's, it's hard for someone now who's just interested in a kind of objective, dispassionate view to, to find that on nutrition or for that matter on any other topic, politics, you know, social, social issues, et cetera. It's so true. Yeah. Documentaries, I think more often than not are, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, you know, I can tell you they're driven, they're made to stir emotion um, because right. it would be, it would be poor storytelling if it didn't. And that's right. just the exact antithesis to, you know, like having a conversation rooted in science. Um, yeah. But I get, I guess I get frustrated when the, when the, you know, we don't have to name them, but like certain doctors in the, especially the, the more vocal ones on social media um, come out of the woodwork. And, you know, I feel like it's a little bit uh, disingenuous on their part to take such a firm stance, you know, and not acknowledge their bias and right. be so imbalanced when, you know, from a, from the, from the standpoint of like science and medicine, you, sh you, you know, you should be a lot more balanced. And I think that's like one of the things that I like about your approach. And, you know, I've gotten, you know, people say that about my approach as, as well. And I just think that that's like a crucial part of the conversation that's not being had. Yeah, agree. agree. Yeah. So what's your, I mean, what's your background? Like, how did you get into health? I mean, I, I know that you struggled with chronic illness yourself over a number of years. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just go into yeah, that? Sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, in my early twenties sold everything that I owned, which wasn't much at that point and took off to travel the world. I was planning on, uh, being gone for two, two years or so. I was a solo trip and, um, I was in Thailand for about three months and then I went to Indonesia. I'm a lifelong surfer. So a lot of what I was doing as I was traveling was surfing and I was on a little Island called Sumbawa in Indonesia. And I got extremely ill with tropical type of illness and you know very long story short that evolved into a 10-year um, arduous journey back to health um, where I saw you know upwards of 50 doctors on three continents and um, everyone from you know shamanic energy medicine practitioners to 
uh, acupuncturists, chiropractors, uh, you know, uh, specialists, medical doctors at the top of their field and, you know, infectious disease and um, tropical medicine. Um, you know, I did uh, a lot of psycho-spiritual, emotional work. I lived at Esalen uh, in Big Sur for two years. Wow. Uh, I, I, I pretty much left no stone unturned <laughs> in any aspect of health and wellness. Um, and eventually, fortunately, did, um, you know, to transition through that really intense phase. And as I was, was, you know, feeling much better and, um, starting to think about what I might do next, a lot of people uh, who had witnessed, um, me in, in that process, you know, were asking me questions about what worked and my diet and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I was, you know, happy to help and I was helping uh, quite a few people and then just decided to um, make that more formal. And so I was originally going to return to, to medical sc- or, or go to medical school. Um, and I was enrolled in a post-bac pre-med program. And uh, my dad actually gave me the good advice of going and interviewing 10 different doctors and asking them, you know, questions about how they feel about their profession and whether, you know, whether they would enter it again. Uh, and through, in that process, I think nine out of the 10 doctors I talked to actually were dissuaded me from entering conventional medicine hmm. um, for various reasons. And as I kind of sat with it more, I, it just became clear to me that that wasn't really the path that I wanted to take, even though I was, you know, very drawn to the science. Um, so I ended up choosing uh, acupuncture and integrative medicine program in California, which is in California, acupuncturists are considered primary care providers under the workers' comp system and able to diagnose and order lab tests. And, um, and, and because of that, we have to receive a lot of the same training that, um, doctors receive. So all of the medical sciences, pathology, anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, internal medicine, research methodology, et cetera. So um, that satisfied that part of me that really wanted that kind of training. And then I also got a lot of training in integrative holistic medicine, which I was also interested in and drawn to. And then when I was still in school, I, I discovered functional medicine. And so actually, and that's when I started my, my blog. And so when I graduated, I started a functional medicine practice right out of the gate. I never actually formally practiced as an acupuncturist. I went right into functional medicine and that's what I've been doing for the last, um, 10 years now. That's amazing. And before you, uh, were kind of, uh, dabbling in the, the notion of going to, you know, medical school, did you, was there a time where you wanted to be like a professional surfer? Like what was the plan as you know, when you were an undergrad, yeah. for example? Yeah. Uh, like many others, I, I didn't have a clear plan. I mean, I was one of those kids who, if you asked me what I wanted to be, when I would grow up, it would change like on a weekly, if not daily basis. Huh. Um, I had some friends growing up who like literally when they were four years old, they knew what they wanted to be and they are that. Um, that was never me. I always had lots of different interests. Um, I was actually, uh, right when I graduated from college, um, 
my my dad ran an ad agency um, and then he sold that to start an IMAX film production company. So I was working and they also did some television production. So I was working in, in TV and IMAX film production for a couple of years. And that was actually right before I decided to quit my quit my job and sell everything and go around the world. I just, I was interested in the creative aspects of that work, but I, I, I just, it wasn't really feeding me uh, on a kind of emotional or soul level. So I, um, I didn't last long, <laughs> even though I enjoyed, uh, you know, it was, it was enjoyable in a, in a lot of ways and actually quite successful at, in, in that field. It just, it didn't fit. Um, and then while I was ill, uh, there were long periods where I wasn't working at all. Um, I was at Esalen, as I mentioned for two years and that's like a work study situation. So I was, I was the gate guard. I was the guy who checks people in at the gate. Um, and you know, their work is just part of your, your process as you, as you kind of navigate the, you know, do your own inner work, you're doing some kind of work on the property to help, you know, make everything run for all the people who are there for the, for the retreats. Um, and I had, you know, I was, I had learned traditional Thai massage when I was in Thailand for three months. So I did that, um, to, to make money. And, um, and then I actually did some, I did some training and counseling and I was doing, working as a counselor for a while. So I have pretty diverse background. That's amazing. It's, I mean, I, I, I can totally relate to your story. Um, so, I mean, we could, we could totally talk about functional medicine, uh, which, you know, I've covered before on the podcast, but yeah, I mean, why don't we start there? Like what, you know, for listeners who might not be familiar with it, what is functional medicine? And then I want to get specifically into like, cause you seem like a perennial truth seeker and that's why I feel like I relate to you. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into kind of like what, what it is that, you know, that you've just, dis- you know, some of your discoveries over the past couple of years, like in mm-hmm. terms of how to live a better, healthier life. Yeah. So I mean, for for those who aren't familiar with functional medicine, I I like to use a, a a story or analogy to illustrate the difference between functional medicine and conventional medicine. So if if you had a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, in the conventional approach, you would go to the doctor and they would give you a painkiller, you know, ibuprofen or something like that, and it it certainly might work, you know, it might reduce the pain, but it it's obviously not dealing with the the problem in functional medicine we would discover you know through testing what's going on and just tell you know you'd take off your shoe and dump out the rock and that's obviously a, a oversimplified example but the whole conventional uh, di- uh, disease care paradigm is based on suppressing symptoms with drugs and this is Largely an artifact of conventional medicine really coming, uh, uh, like growing up in a time where acute infectious diseases were the the biggest challenges that we face. So back in 1900, the top three causes of death were typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. So, yeah, you know, the, and, and other reasons that people might go to a doctor were like a broken arm or an appendicitis or some other emergency acute type of situation. And so... Conventional medicine actually does excel 
at dealing with those things. You know, if I get hit by a bus, I I, I do <laughs> I want to be taken to the hospital, not <laughs> an acupuncturist. You know, not right not right away at least. <laughs> um, but it's not very. But that's not where we are now. So if you fast forward to today, the top three causes seven out of the top ten causes of death are chronic diseases and chronic disease, unlike acute conditions, are complex. They're difficult to manage. They often require multiple doctors and uh, they can last for a lifetime. So it's really a situation where like the, our, our model of medical care is mismatched with what our needs are. So functional medicine is really an effort to address that by um, really trying to get to the root cause of chronic disease and treat them so that the patient can fully recover rather than being consigned to, uh, you know, taking medication for the rest of their life. What about the argument that, I mean, we're, we're seeing this new breed of chronic illness um, be, simply because, you know, it's a function of the fact that we're living longer and that, you know, you, you allow a human to live long enough and they're going to develop, you know, either heart disease or dementia or cancer. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just a function of that. Um, I don't think that that's true. Um, it, it, that comes out of this, um, this argument that uh, our av- average lifespan of hunter-gatherers was very low, and that is true. But you have to understand um, what an average is, you know, mathematically. It's, uh, if you have, you know, in, in those cultures, traditional cultures, you had very high rates of infant mortality and, and early deaths in the early years that were due to things like, uh, uh, you know, trauma, uh, exposure to the elements, tribal warfare, uh, and stuff that most of us are not dealing with at this point. And, if, and a complete lack of emergency medical care um, that would be required to handle those things. But medical anthropologists who studied extant hunter-gatherer um, societies like in the 60s and 70s found that if they were able to escape, you know, those those more acute causes of death in early in life, and if they had access to even the most rudimentary form of medical care, like walking a half day to a rural medical clinic, they lived lifespans that were equivalent to our own hmm. um, in the industrialized world. But the key difference was they didn't acquire all of the chronic diseases that characterize our old age. They didn't tend to get diabetes. They don't tend to get heart disease. They don't tend to get most forms of cancer. They don't develop Alzheimer's or dementia. They, uh, the, the most common pattern is for them to live a long, healthy life and to just die at mm. some point of natural causes. So I don't buy that argument. And yet at the same time, I think it is true that we're exposed to a growing number of um, threats to our health. You know, not everything from uh, diet, which is the obvious one, to you know more sedentary lifestyle, to chronic sleep deprivation, where a third of Americans are now getting fewer than six hours of sleep a night, which you know almost all sleep authorities you know recommend at least seven and a half. Uh, at this point, 
We've got things like light pollution, um, circadian disruption from traveling across time zones or using you know screens too much at night, get, not getting enough exposure to during the day, uh, air pollution, other environmental toxin exposure. I mean, I, I could go on and go on and it gets pretty depressing. Um, uh, but the point being that like, I, I think in a way, and this is, you know, to your question about what have I been thinking about recently in some, you know, because of what I just said, I think there, there's an element of adaptation that, needs to happen where uh, we don't always have full control over every aspect of our environment, right? Like it's, it's difficult for most people to be able to perfectly control all of those variables that I just mentioned, Um, especially air pollution, you know, like uh, not everyone can, can live in a place that has pristine air quality. So it, I'm more and more thinking about like, how do we adapt to the the life that we're living now as best we can. So h- how do we adapt? Well, I think it's it's a combination of factors. So, you know, controlling all of the factors that we can control as well as we can. So, you know, diet is is a is a fantastic starting place for most people. Uh, I think the four pillars where people will get the you know, if you think of the 80-20 rule, uh, 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the benefit. Um, uh, it would be diet, sleep, physical activity, and stress management. So uh, let's just talk about physical activity as an example of what I mean by adapting. So uh, a lot of people, of course, now are knowledge workers. They work in front of a computer for you know, long hours during the day. And the default way of doing that is sitting in a chair at a desk and really not taking any breaks other than uh, maybe lunchtime. But even though a lot of people end up eating lunch at their desk and not even taking that. So um, here's one way that that could look differently. And of course, this isn't possible for everyone. It depends on their workplace and, you know, what their employer will allow and what, or if they work at home. But um, you could have a desk that's uh, a, a standing desk or one that goes up and down that goes from sitting to standing. Um, I have at my workstation, I have an under the desk elliptical. Hmm. Um, get it for about 200 bucks on Amazon. So as I'm, even when I'm sitting, I'm st- I can still um, pedal the elliptical back and forth and type and talk on the phone and do that sort of thing. I have... Uh, Also, there's a, it looks a little bit like an exercise bike, but it doesn't have any handlebars. And I can put that um, at my desk so I can pedal while I'm typing. I have um, an an app on the Mac called Timeout that is, I set to a specific time. It it reminds it every 45 minutes, it takes over my screen and reminds me to take a short break. And Depending on if I'm going to the gym that day, if I'm not, I might just take a break and do, I've got some kettlebells in my office. I've got some TRX straps. I've got uh, some push-up bars and some various, some other kinds of equipment. And I might just do some physical activity, you know, something like that 
during one of those breaks or I turn my eyes away from the screen, look out the window, go sit outside for a few minutes. And so if when I'm as I do, do that throughout the day, um, I feel completely different at the end of that day than I would if I just sat in a chair looking at the screen the entire day. So, you know, there are little things that we can do um, for people who work in an office and don't have as much control. You know, if you take public transportation, get off two stops before your stop. So you get, you know, walk a mile or two in both directions to and from work, you know, take the stairs instead of the elevator, uh, take walking meetings, um, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can work physical activity into your routine, um, even when you're working, you know, a nine to five desk job. I love that. And when you when you do get to the gym to perform a more concentrated form of exercise, what what kinds of exercises are you focusing on? I've, I, I'm a big fan of variety. Um, I like to mix it up a lot. Um, so I'll do every I'll, I'll do kind of. Some days I'll do uh, strength training, like Olympic style lifts, you know, deadlifts, squats, that sort of thing. Um, other days I'll do more kind of like balance and agility, um, battle ropes, standing, you know, on one leg, on one. I don't know what you call those things. The little, uh, they look like a like half circle. They're squishy, you know, you it's stand on them to balance. Yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll, you know, stand on that with, with one leg and do the ropes and I'll do, you know, lunges with kettlebells or kettlebell workout, or I'll swim. I like to swim a lot as a surfer. That's always been a big part of my life. Um, yeah, I love outdoor exercise. So, um, you know, running or, or hiking or, um, climbing, uh, surfing, certainly, uh, skiing when I'm able to do that, like in, anything that, uh, I mean, if I could only just do outdoor exercise all the time, that would be my preference, but it doesn't always work out that way. So that's where the gym comes in. Yeah. I'm a big, uh, gym junkie. I love, I love going to the gym. I mean, but I, but I realize that not everybody's going to have a gym membership. Um, right. so these, you know, these tips are all super invaluable because you can, you can have, enough workout equipment in your home where, you know, needing a gym membership would be moot, right? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I've been in hotels where I'm doing dips, you know, with my feet on one counter and, you know, my hands on the counter kind of across from, from that. Like I've moved furniture around. And there, if, if you get creative, there's always a way to do it you know, and, and get some activity. And why is exercise so important? Well, it's, you know, we're just biologically programmed for physical activity. We didn't, we didn't ever have uh, long periods of, of sedentary, of being sedentary. Um, we had to hunt for food. We had to create and build our shelters. Um, you know, we had to, uh, fight uh, often, so we had a very physically active um, lifestyle, and and that's true of of many animals too, not just humans. <clears throat> so our bodies are kind of hardwired for physical activity, and and I I will even make the distinction between exercise and what's 
referred to in the, in the scientific literature as non-exercise physical activity. So, because I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, let's, you know, if you think of exercise as going to the gym and doing, you know, doing some cardio or lifting some weights, that's super important. But studies have actually shown that you could get the recommended amount of exercise per week, you know, according to the standard government recommendations, like three to five days of moderate intensity, you know, uh, 45 to 60 minutes a day, I think it is moderate intensity activity, and still be at increased risk of chronic disease if you have very, very low levels of non-exercise physical activity. So imagine someone who um, drives an hour in the car to work, um, spends, you know, eight hours at a desk um, sitting at work, uh, drives an hour home, um, and then spends a couple hours on the couch watching Netflix. Even if they have one hour of exercise at the gym in that day, that's not going to wipe out the other, you know, 12 hours of sitting. Uh, And there's research now that shows that even um, people who are training for a marathon, if they were completely sedentary all of the rest of the time, they um, had markers that were suggestive of like sedentary life. So um, it's, it's pretty important to focus on both ends of that equation, both the exercise piece and the non-exercise physical activity. And that's for me, like the way I do that is, is what I was explaining with um, all of the uh, different ways I move my body throughout a day while I'm working. Yeah. So, I mean, some examples could be just taking a walk, um, basically anything other than sitting on your couch or sitting at your desk or sitting in your car. Yeah, exactly. And even standing counts, you know, and especially if you're doing micro movements. So I, for, I forgot to mention another couple pieces of equipment. I have a, a treadmill uh, desk treadmill. That's obviously not going to work for a lot of people, but um, I have a balance board. So when I'm standing, um, this is a board where you you have to be continually making micro adjustments and 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 balancing, and those micro adjustments um, studies have actually shown that they burn a ton of calories, not a ton, but they burn significant number of calories when you're doing that. Another thing is an exercise ball, like the yoga balls. You've seen these big balls um, in yoga studios. You can use one of those as a chair, and similar to the balance board you have to make continual micro adjustments um, in order to stay in the same position. So that can be a more active sitting experience than just sitting in a chair. The more you describe the, the things that you have around your house, the more it sounds like it's kind of like a, like there, you know, like a, ch- a child's like dream place to play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, I look forward to, um, coming in and doing my work. I, I, I actually discovered this, um, my first, the first book that I wrote, I was, um, when I first started to write the book, I was sitting a lot, you know, like in researching and reading studies and writing. And, uh, <clears throat> after about two or three weeks that I was feeling so bad, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> this is going to kill me. Um, and then, you know, I can't remember how I, uh, you know, I think I was just poking around the internet and seeing, uh, this was pretty early on when very few people had 
standing desk. It wasn't, you know, you had to kind of do it yourself, you know, there were, you couldn't really even buy them at that point. Um, but I built one and I got a treadmill and put it under there. And I, I recorded actually that I walked 2000 miles, uh, in the course of writing my first book. So after that, I was hooked, uh, you know, it was a, a way to combine physical activity and, and work seemed like a pretty good deal to me. <laughs> That's amazing. And we, I mean, we haven't even touched on the brain benefits of exercise, but that probably in a major way helped you to write the book from the standpoint of creativity and just brain power. Absolutely. It kept me fresh. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a huge benefit. You know, I, I get to the end of the day and I'm so much less tired mentally because I've been moving throughout that in, entire period and it helps keep me sharp, keep me focused. Uh, more creativity, as you said. So yeah, it's it's definitely, it's it's a firmly ingrained part of my routine at this point. I don't think people fully appreciate that being sedentary for an extended period of time literally drains blood from your brain. Yeah, it's, that's uh, a great point. Yeah. Um, so your brain needs, your brain is the control center for optimal health. So if you want to be healthy and you want to age well and have a long health span, you got to protect your brain more than anything else. Got to protect your brain. So in terms of, uh, diet and, um, also, uh, I'm just curious, you know, you're the kind of guy who I feel like if I, if you invited me into your house, one of the first things that I would want to see would be like your supplement cabinet, because if you're anything (laughs) like me, you know, like when I have friends come over and they look at my cabinet and they see all the little things that I've like tried or I'm taking, um, it's just, it's super fun. And I like doing that when I go to my friend's house too. So, Mm -hmm. uh, What's your, like, what's your, you know, the 30,000 foot, like your diet look like, and then your view on supplementation? Yeah, I, um, I eat, uh, I'm, I, uh, something relatively close to a paleo diet. I call it a paleo template though, because I've never been a, a you know, uh, strict, proponent of paleo. You know, I don't, I think that grains and legumes can be healthy when, if they're well tolerated and properly prepared, I, I really, um, don't at all think that there's research to support the idea that grains and legumes are, are big, you know, whole grains and legumes are part of the chronic disease epidemic or driving it. Um, but I don't do well personally when I eat a lot of grains and, and legumes and a lot of my patients that I've worked with don't either. Um, and so I, I, I just feel better when I limit those. I eat a lot of non-starchy vegetables, um, a lot of starchy plants like sweet potatoes, potatoes, plantains, uh, yucca, taro. I like to mix up the starches. I eat some white rice. Um, I eat, uh, not a ton of fruit and not because I don't think that whole fruit is good for you. I just, um, you know, I like berries a lot. Um, if I'm in the tropics surfing, for example, I'll definitely eat trop, you know, papaya, banana, tropical fruit, but I tend to eat mostly seasonal fruits and pretty limited there. Um, I do really well with, um, full fat, um, fermented, and not and non-fermented dairy that is lower in la- lower in lactose. So I don't drink milk, um, uh, but I I do great with like ghee and butter and cream and hard cheeses and um, 
goat cheese shav. I think it's delicious and I tolerate it well. So that's definitely uh, part of it for me. Um, on the supplement, a right, lot of lot of broth, um, a lot of fermented foods. Like I like always looking like new uh, different fermented vegetables, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut. Um, there's lots of different options now in this in the market, which is fun. Um, uh, some organ meats, uh, shellfish, fish, cold water, fatty fish, all really important, super nutrient dense omega threes. So yeah, that's the the basic picture of my diet. And what, then for sup, what before we, before we move on to supplements, when it comes to dairy, um, I mean, if you're lactose intolerant, you pretty much know. But by sticking to like uh, you know low lactose foods and you tolerate that, would you say that there's anything um, inherently you know um, you know treacherous about uh, casein? I know that a lot of people are now starting to talk about the different types of casein, A1, A2, but is there any, do you have any concern about, about that or are you just generally? Think uh, there, there's definitely a small portion of the population that is casein intolerant or intolerant to other proteins in dairy. Um, that's a relatively small percent. It's in the single digits. I can't remember the exact percent. Whereas two out of three people globally are lactose intolerant. So if someone has an, <coughs> excuse me, if someone has an issue with dairy, it's far more likely to be lactose than it is the proteins. Um, that said, if it is protein, uh, not only will the reaction tend to be um, stronger, it also more severely limits, um, you know, what dairy products can be consumed. In some cases, it's zero. Um, yeah. in, in, in other cases, some people who are casein intolerant are able to, to, to tolerate ghee um, because ghee is, you know, virtually, there's, you know, casein and lactose are virtually undetectable in ghee. Um, but if you're, if you're lactose intolerant, then you can, there are a lot of dairy products that are, have either, almost no lactose or no lactose, like uh, ghee, again, butter, uh, hard cheeses tend to have almost no lactose. A kefir yogurt that's been fermented for 24 hours tend to have no lactose. So there are a lot more options there. I don't think casein is a problem in general. I think it's just a problem if it's a problem. You know, someone has an intolerance or an allergy to it. And then the A2 and A1 thing... I can say that anecdotally, um, some people notice a big difference. My wife actually is one of them. Um, she doesn't tolerate A1 very well, but can drink A2 <clears throat> milk and have A2 dairy with no issue. There's not, I don't think there's a lot of, I haven't looked closely at the, at the, at the literature in the last probably year and a half, but the last time I looked, there wasn't a lot of high quality data um, indicating a difference, but I've definitely heard anecdotal reports from patients and people, and you can look at, you can see that online too, that, that, um, there are quite a few people that, um, notice a difference. I've heard you cite, um, the epidemiology a few times about, uh, you know, surrounding the, the differences in people's health, health, health outcomes related to whether they consume low fat or fat-free dairy versus full fat. What what's your thinking there? I mean, do you you said that you 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 tend to reach more for the full fat, but is there a place for low fat 
or fat-free dairy? I mean, what's the, what's your thinking there? Um, so there, there's some really large reviews that have been done on this topic um, in the last four years. And I think I may have covered some of them in my um, uh, Rogan appearance. Um, so the, uh, the research is pretty clear um, that dairy products, um, if you look at the totality of the evidence, and keep in mind that these studies are not actually taking into consideration um, whether somebody is lactose intolerant or even casein intolerant. Um, so if they did, it makes me wonder if the the evidence on dairy would be even stronger. Um, but as it stands, uh, let's let's look at cancer, for example. So there was a 2019 review, it was the largest review ever performed on um, meta-analyses. So this was not a meta-analysis looking at individual studies. It was a review of meta-analyses that had been done on individual studies. So they looked at 153 meta-analyses and 84% of them showed either no association with cancer, so there was just no change either way, or an inverse association. A small, it was like, I think, 71% showed no association and 13% showed an inverse association, which means people who consumed dairy uh, had lower rates of cancer. And there was a, a review of 52 clinical trials in 2017 that found that dairy products were inversely associated with inflammatory markers. So this meant that people who consume more dairy had lower levels of inflammation. And that's that's really interesting given that dairy could potentially cause inflammation in someone who is intolerant of the casein proteins. So, um, but but given that that number of people is, is so, so low, it probably didn't, have, you know, that obviously didn't affect the those data. And then, there is a lot of research um, showing that dairy products are inversely associated with cardiometabolic disease, so cardiovascular disease and metabolic diseases. And in that particular research, when you look at meta metabolic and cardiovascular disease, full fat or um, you know whole or full fat dairy tends to come out a little bit ahead of non-fat uh, or low-fat dairy. And the thinking there is that some of the protective or beneficial effects that you get from dairy um, are from the, fat, the, the fatty acids, some unique fatty acids that are in dairy fat. And so if you, if you remove that and have only non-fat dairy, then you're not getting those benefits. Super interesting. I I also have a hunch that, you know, low fat or fat free dairy is just a more processed form of dairy. And if you look at one of the most common dairy items in the supermarket that people buy, it's like low fat or fat free yogurt filled with sugar. Yes, that's a big problem. That's, uh, you know, there's actually been hearings about that with Chobani, like they had more grams of sugar than protein in the, in the yogurt. And so, you know, people think they're doing a healthy thing when they're uh, unfortunately just, um, you know, really, it's kind of almost analogous to drinking a, a soda or something like that. Not quite, but you know, it's, it's not a health food anymore. 
Definitely not. I've 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 recently, you know, been into okay, I'm not a big dairy consumer, but I'll buy occasionally like some of these really thick um Icelandic yogurts. And I actually mm-hmm. the fat-free ones are they've got a really great like macro profile. Like they've got yeah. very few calories, like I don't know, like 70 to 80 calories in a cup and 19 grams of protein or something mm-hmm. crazy like that. Yeah. I, I, I do like the fat-free Greek yogurts or and some of those. I, I prefer whole Greek yogurt, but um, the, it has a good texture and it is, you know, a great source of protein. And and milk, when you think about protein bioavailability and digestibility, um, dairy proteins are, at, you know, really far up on the scale. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk, let's talk supplements. Uh, I don't actually take a lot of supplements. Um, I mean, I, I, I think of supplementation in two categories. So maintenance and therapeutic. So mm. maintenance is the supplementing to meet nutrient needs that we can't meet otherwise from the diet. So vitamin D might be a good example of that for a lot of people. Although I never take vitamin D. I'm somehow able to maintain a normal vitamin D level all year um, without supplementation. It might be because of the amount of cold water fatty fish I eat or pasture-raised eggs uh, or just that I spend a lot of time outdoors um, and probably genetics because there's a big difference now. We know for um, how, how, how much, how efficient people are in that conversion of sunlight to vitamin D. Um, based on genetics. Um, I do take magnesium regularly, magnesium glycinate, because I found that I, I feel better and um, do better with that. And I think a lot of uh, soils now are depleted in magnesium. So the, the way we would get it from food historically is we're not getting it as much now. Um, those are really... You know, you know, magnesium is pretty is kind of the only supplement that I take routinely. Um, I'll sometimes, oh, I, I will take cod liver oil. So you know, I think of that more as a food hmm. that comes in supplement form because it, it's just pure cod liver oil um, that has some vitamin A and D and EPA and DHA. So I'll sometimes take that in the winter if I'm not getting enough sun exposure. Um, and then, the, you know, and then therapeutic supplementation is taking supplements for a specific purpose, often for a specific period of time, you know, to, uh, to achieve a certain goal. Um, and that can really run the gamut. Um, you know, that, that's, of course, a lot of the work that I do with patients is uh, involves therapeutic supplementation. Yeah. You mentioned eating a lot of fish. One of my favorite blogs on your site actually talks about the whole um, mercury, uh, issue with some of the larger predatory fish. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about that, cause in that, in that blog, you're, I think pretty skeptical of, uh, you know, being fearful of mercury and fish. And it has something to do with the fact that fish also tend to commonly consumed fish tend to also have a lot of selenium. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it certainly is an issue in some types of fish. Um, but, there, there is like the selenium mercury ratio and selenium um, having adequate selenium status really helps to, to mitigate any effects of low levels of mercury exposure because selenium is uh, the, the um, 
it's the cofactor for selenoenzymes that actually are involved in detoxification of mercury. Um, but I still think it's a good idea as a, uh, they're, you know, after working with patients for 10 years on these things and testing a lot of people, what's clear is that um, there are genetic uh, and epigenetic differences in how efficiently people process mercury and, and other heavy metals. So, you could take some people, like 10 people, and give feed them the same exact amount of, uh, and the same types of seafood. And you, you could see, uh, a, uh, you know, 10 different levels of mercury in their blood if you tested them um, because, of, because of that. So um, I generally advise people to, I mean, there are, there are several different um, charts that are available um, that, you know, list the mercury content of common, commonly consumed seafood. Uh, swordfish, for example, tends to be pretty high. Um, tuna tends to be pretty high. Um, um, and then, you know, less commonly eaten species, especially in the U.S., like shark um, are also high. So if you stick with the um, more cold water fatty fish that are not at the top of the food chain, like um, sardines, anchovies, mackerel, herring, um, and then even fish like halib halibut and salmon, uh, not only do you get a higher amount of omega-3 fats from those fish, which is one of the one of their many benefits, you also get lower levels of mercury. So it's it's nice that it works out that way. So for a fish like tuna, I mean, tuna does have more selenium than mercury. You would still say it's worth a little bit of caution when it comes to tuna? Uh, I think so, unless, you, unless, you, unless you've had testing and you know that the amount that you're eating is not contributing to increased mercury levels. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, and what about, uh, you know, foods, um, maybe even supplements to help with detoxification, whether it's mercury, other heavy metals earlier in the episode, you mentioned, you know, toxic, you know, environmental exposures, chemicals, phthalates, PB, you know, PCBs and things like that. Um, any, uh, any recommendations there? I think the most important things are just eating a really diverse diet with a lot of um, a lot of plants, like uh, you know, non-starchy vegetables, fruits, um, organ meats. Uh, you know, a, a really nutrient-dense diet is going to contain all the nutrients that you need for detoxification. Exercise is super important, and then I'm also a big advocate of heating your core body temperature through mm. a sauna, for example. Um, I know that's not accessible to everyone, although there now are more and more options for home saunas that are um, more in the range of accessibility. But, um, you know, sweating through exercise, sweating through a hot bath or sweating through sauna, all of that is really helpful for detox. Yeah, I mean, you sweat these compounds out. You sweat mm -hmm. heavy metals out. Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, which is amazing. Um well, dude, I mean, this is like, this has been so great. I feel like I could pick your brain for another three hours, but, um, what else, what else before we go, we don't have that much time left. Can we, uh, 
can we leave my audience with? I mean, they're, I'm sure many of them are already fans of yours and they love actionable stuff. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, you know, um, change is hard. That's, uh, something that the research shows and something I've come to see in working with people over many, many years. And, um, you know, like I, I, one of the reasons I've become such a big advocate of health coaching is that I recognize now that um, information is often not the problem. You know, a lot of people, most people know at least to some degree what they should be doing, but they're not doing it. And that's because uh, to, to some extent we're, we're really fighting against our hardwired biological programming. So um you know, either finding a health coach to work with or um, just uh, focusing more on the, the, the changes themselves, like breaking them down into um, very, very small actions can be an easy first step to take. So if, if you're changing your diet, you know, for some people it works to just go do a whole 30 or a paleo reset, you know, just go from cold turkey and do do it 100%. But what I often see with that is then when that's over, they just go almost right back to what they were doing before. Um, So, you know, maybe change in that context looks like eliminating sugar, flour, and and seed oil, like industrial oils. And you do that, you feel the benefits of that. And then you, you know, the next step there is is cutting out any other processed and refined food. You, you do that and you feel better and you, you know, you shrink the change. That's the saying in the behavior change literature. So you shrink it into bite-sized doable steps and then you let the success build on itself. And that gives you the motivation to take the next step. When it comes to health coaching, is there a, um, like a certification that listeners might um, look for, or if, you know, anybody listening wants to actually become a health coach, what, I mean, what are some of the, the, the routes to get to that mm-hmm. certification? Yeah, there are, are several programs out there. I think it's, uh, it's really important to look for a program that is accredited, approved by the national board of health and wellness coaches. This isn't, um, relatively new organization that has teamed up with the national board of medical examiners who they, that's the uh, group that determines what medical doctors need to do to become a medical doctor. So um, the problem has been with health coaching that it's really been the, like the wild west, you know, uh, any, anyone could call themselves a health coach, any, anyone could start a health coach training and it didn't, you know, it, it could literally be a weekend course and, um, that could be a, a health coach program. Um, this national board has now defined the, the core competencies that someone needs to uh, acquire and master in order to become a certified board certified health coach. And uh, they've also created rigorous standards for training programs um, to become approved by the national board so that when some, when people are looking for uh, health coach training programs, they can know that they're going to get the skills and knowledge that uh, that they need to be a successful health coach. So I would advise people to look for programs that are 
approved by the National Board of Health, Health and Wellness Coaching. Um, we have a, program, uh, a health coach training program that was launched um, last year in 2018 that um, I'm very proud of. And we are one of the few programs that's fully approved by the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaches. They're, they're most current and rigorous criteria, and we've actually exceeded their criteria. Um, and our program covers uh, functional health, you know, ancestral diet and lifestyle, um, the core coaching skills, and also the um, business and professional development skills that people need to have to be a successful coach. So you can learn more about that at CresserInstitute.com. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's like, I guess the first time really that I thought about the the value of health coaching that people, you know, there's, it's not people's inaction is not because of a lack of information. There's not, there's certainly not an information deficit today. No. And you know how we know that is the CDC estimates that uh, only about 6% of Americans consistently engage in the top five health behaviors. And these are not like, we're not talking about like, advanced thing, you know, like intermittent fasting and ketogenic <laughs> diets and med- meditating for an hour a day. We're talking about the absolute basics. So maintaining a healthy BMI, not drinking excessively, not smoking, getting uh, enough sleep and getting enough physical activity. They didn't, they didn't even include nutrition in, in those, in those five. And yet 6% only of Americans consistently do that. And I bet you if you asked 100 people if those things are healthy and they should be doing them, 100 people would say yes. So you're right. It's not a problem of lack of information. It's that you know we have these hardwired mechanisms in our brain that we have to overcome. If you, if you take diet, for example, we're, we're hardwired to seek out highly rewarding and calorie-dense food because that would have protected us our survival in a natural environment where food was sometimes a scarce resource. But when you take that brain programming and apply it in a world where there's a 7-Eleven and a McDonald's and a Starbucks on every corner, that's a problem. So, you know, and physical activity, it's similar. It's uh, we're kind of programmed to be lazy because we always, uh, always had to be moving to, to not, you know, to, to not die. Yeah. And, um, and you got a doggy, and, doggy in the back. Yeah. Let me, I'll just, it's okay. Uh, it's a dog and a kid. Nice. Just got home. So we always had to move. Right. Yeah. And so it was to our advantage from an evolutionary perspective that when we had the opportunity to not move, we would be sedentary. That would preserve energy. And, that's a bummer, right? In our in a culture where we don't have to move anymore, and if we're naturally programmed to just be sedentary, that works against us. So we have to overcome this this um, hardwired programming in our brain, and that's difficult. And that's why having the support, you know, like getting smarter about behavior change. There's so much evidence and research on behavior change now that just hasn't percolated down into the mainstream healthcare system. Um, but fortunately that's starting to change with this movement toward health coaching. I love it. Um, well, I've got one last question for you, but before we get to that, how can listeners connect with you on social media? And I know you recently put a book out on conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, so people should definitely go and check that out too. 
Yeah, so um, uh, chriscresser.com is my ma- main website, and then cresserinstitute.com is for the training programs. I also, we also have a functional medicine training program for doctors and other licensed clinicians who want to learn functional medicine. Uh, and then I'm, I'm at uh, Twitter, Chris Cresser, Instagram, Chris Cresser, and uh, Facebook is Chris Cresser LAC. Uh, and then Unconventional Medicine, as you mentioned, is my most recent book. That's the book about how to uh, reinvent healthcare and prevent and reverse chronic disease instead of just putting band-aids on it. So that's uh, you can find that on Amazon and unconventionalmedicinebook.com. Love that. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Um, and the last question before we go, it gets asked to everybody that's on this show. It's a little more philosophical, but take it wherever you'd like. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? Such a good question. Um, for me, it's, it's um, I think, just a, a constant pursuit of um, growth, learning and growth. I mean, that when I really zoom out and look at everything in my life, not just my work, but my, my hobbies, my personal life, just the trajectory my life has taken. I'm, I'm, uh, as you said, a truth seeker, uh, in, in, in every area of my life. And I'm, I'm just constantly trying to learn more to kind of pull, peel back the, the veil and get to the bottom of things. And I think, um, that's, uh, that has served me well and it's served many of my mentors well. And I think that's a, a good prescription. That's awesome. Couldn't have said it better. Well, Chris, thank you so much for jumping on and I'm really grateful to have connected with you and, uh, I look forward to staying in touch and maybe grabbing yeah. like a, a meal together one day. That would be great, Max. I appreciate the invitation. Thank Thank you. Awesome. Well, have a good one. And to all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the show. Please spread the message about Chris's work. Share this episode of the show. Highlight your favorite quote from uh, Chris or I. Tag us both. would really appreciate that. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.